Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place or Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is a feature episode with Eric Van Lustbader. Now, as you're going to hear in the very beginning of this interview, this is an author who I read as a very young man, and uh, so it was quite a thrill to talk to somebody that I've admired for uh, many years. If you don't know who Eric Van Lusbader is, well, he wrote the Born series after uh, the original author passed away, uh, but he also wrote the Nicholas Linear series, which began with The Ninja in the early 1980s, and it was a massive success. And he did a few other things, some of which may surprise you, and I won't spoil those surprises, but uh, you probably won't see some of them coming. Uh, before we get to Mr. Lusbader, though, uh, well, let's check in with Lance Wright from Down and Out Books. Uh, Down and Out Books is the sponsor of our show. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it from the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. Let's find out what's coming out new in October from Lance Wright. Thanks, Frank. Well, this month is opening strong with the latest collection of crime novellas from Ross Clavin, Kim O'Mara, and Charles Salzberg, titled Third Degree. Ross has an original story of two old friends, one of whom is now in deep trouble, but won't say how. And in the end, it's clear someone is going to pay with his life. Tim continues the story of Aggie and his team of smugglers, this time taking down a billionaire trafficking in young children. Finally, Charles brings back his young reporter, Jake Harper. Set just after Pearl Harbor, Jake discovers a group of German-Americans planning to sabotage the war effort. Next up is The Better of the Bad by J.J. Hensley, the fourth book in his well-reviewed series featuring P.I. Trevor Galloway. Set in Savannah, Georgia, this thriller is centered on a man who taunts police to catch him by dialing 911, calling the dispatch center at exactly 9.11 p.m., and providing the location of a victim. But by then, it's too late for anyone to help. Finally, Nick Kolakowski has a follow-up to Boise Long Pig Hunting Club, titled Rattlesnake Rodeo with the action picking up as Jake and his sister Jackie are on the run from their kidnappers and the terrible game they were forced to play. If they're going to make it through, however, they need to strike a devil's bargain and carry out a seemingly impossible crime. This and more in October this month from Down and Out Books. Thanks, Frank. Well, thanks, Lance, and some good titles there. Uh, I've read some of the Trevor Galloway ones in particular, um, and J.J. Hensley knows how to write a good book, and he's got a couple of cool little gimmicks in there, too, that make it kind of fun, but the writing is super solid, and uh, I don't think it's a stretch at all to call it a thriller. He's been on the show, uh, as has uh, Nick Kolakowski, who uh, has a sequel to Boise Long Pig Hunting Club coming out. Good guy, and a cool book there, too. Speaking of cool books, uh, Eric Van Lusbader has written a bunch of them, and uh, I had a very uh, lengthy and illuminating conversation with him, so let's just dive straight into that. Well, hello, Mr. Lusbader, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. It's my pleasure to be here. 
Now, I'll be honest, this is a pretty informal show, and usually I am first naming it with guests, uh, but I, I recently talked to Walter Mosley for the season opener, and he was Mr. Mosley. And I have to confess, um, you know, I'm, I'm 52, and so I was high school age during the 80s when The Ninja came out. And that was one of those books that uh, I totally fanboyed into. I was just uh, getting involved in martial arts. And, of course, ninjas were the whole big thing in the early 80s. It was newly discovered. Uh, so uh, you're Mr. Lesbader as a result of that. Well, well, you, can, you whatever you want. You can call me Eric as well. I'll try to work up the, the gumption for it. But I, I would like to, to start with that because the ninja – uh, series, uh, the Nicholas Linear series. Uh, would you call that your breakout series, at least in thriller genre? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, The Ninja came out in 1980, became a worldwide bestseller and something of a phenomenon because it spent uh, 20 consecutive weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, it spawned a whole a whole bunch of other books in that in that area. And um, nobody had really ever heard of Ninja here, um, and uh, that really started the um, the whole craze. And you can imagine how annoyed I was about uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, <laughs> along with all these other terrible, terrible ninja films that were just, you know, exploitation films and just mm -hmm. not good at all. Mm -hmm. um, I still and, watched them, but uh, they, <laughs> they weren't any good. You're right. The majority I still of love you. You know, what, what was the genesis of that? Did you have a background in martial arts? Were you an historian of uh, like no, medieval Japan? No, um, I was um, interested in Japanese woodblock prints, Yukioi mm -hmm. prints, as, as they're known. And um, my mother was working at the time she was retired. She was working as a docent in at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And she's, one of her good friends was the Far East art uh, curator. And she mentioned um, to my mother that I should go to a place called the Ronin Gallery in, in New York because they had the largest selection of Japanese woodblock wood prints in the Western world. And so I did go. At that time, they were at the, the Explorers Club mansion up on East, I think, 73rd Street or something because the owner, Herb Libertson, was a, a member of the club and a huge explorer. I mean, he, he did a lot of exploring in um, New Guinea and actually discovered a Stone Age tribe that nobody else had, had um, seen before. Anyway, Herb and his um, wife, Ronnie, I became very good friends with them. Herb took me under his wing. I was sort of like his son. And um, so I would hang out at, at the gallery and at that time, they were a nexus for Japanese Americans coming over here, either for a long stay or emigrating over here. And so there were always a group of them uh, around talking. And one day I heard them talking about Ninja and I, my writer's mind said, oh, what is that? And I started talking with them. And um, the moment I uh, heard about what they were, my whole uh, brain started to explode. And I imagined them as a drop of chaos and I imagine them being, one of them being dropped down in the middle of, of New York City and what kind of chaos that would cause. And from that came, came the book. I didn't tell my agent I was writing it. I had, been, I had written 
for fantasy novels, um, the Sunset Warrior series. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't know anything. He didn't know anything else what I was doing. I wrote it over the summer of, I guess, 79. And I handed it to him and um, without saying anything. So he called me about, I don't know, about four or five days later. And he said, this is a big book. And I thought, I said to him, well, you know, I, I guess I can cut some so he said no 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 that's not what i mean he said i think this is a bestseller and i want your permission to uh do a multiple submission because it meant that he would have to make copies of, of the multiple copies of the book which he would charge me for so i said sure go ahead and um it was turned down by um almost everybody really uh, we sold it right, yeah we sold it right away in england uh, immediately it was and it's for a lot of money um, but here, nobody really kind of understood it. Uh, we got a sort of wishy-washy offer from Random House, but I remember the reason it was wishy-washy was that, now remember in those days, hardcover uh, publishers had a sub-rights editor because they sold off the paperback rights. It's not the way it is now. So their, their very famous uh, sub-rights editor, Millie Marmer, said, I don't think this is going to be a big book in paperback i don't see it so we decided not to go there and all the while my my agent had been telling me that we, we there was a publishing company that was very interested in the book they were really hot for it but they were uh, name of m ambulance i said i never heard of them he said well they've never published a uh, fiction before and i said what and he said yeah but they they are really hot for this book and they've been asking me to uh have a lunch w- meeting with you so finally I said yes, and they came to the meeting. They had with, with um, an entire marketing and advertising campaign. They had gone to an, uh, Madison Avenue ad agency and had them, not, not, a, not a book agency, but a, a Madison Avenue agency to work up um, programs for, for this. And I was blown away. I mean, it was, it was just yeah, I guess so. uh, fantastic. So um, I reluctantly I said yes, and um, reluctantly because of their experience in fiction publishing, or no, they they had no. Well, I mean, because my my agent said to me, uh, and and it's still true today, that enthusiasm is ninety percent of the work that needs to be done. If you get a publisher that's really really hot for your book, you can't ask for much more, and they were. And they went out and did a fantastic job. And it got immediate, amazing word of mouth. And it just spread like wildfire. And then it was bought by Zanuck and Brown, who had a deal with the 20th century. And that's a whole other story that is would 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 take up an entire another podcast. So I don't want to get into it. But suffice it to say, it's never it's never been uh, made into a film. That's ironic when you think about it, given what you said earlier about the, just the dearth of good ninja movies. I mean, ninja movies are generally you know you're getting a what you're getting, and it's it's not great movie it might be fun but it's not a great movie whereas the linear novels are are great thrillers and you would think they would translate really well to film well uh i agree with you especially since i write cinematically but that doesn't take into account the insanity of 
of Hollywood. <laughs> um, the first first screenwriter they got um, decided to have Nicholas kill. I don't. I can't even remember the 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 uh, villain's name uh, with with a with a gun. And I, I you know, screenwriters don't want to. They want to put their their imprimatur on onto a screenplay. They don't want to just copy what the writer has done. And so they they inevitably change things. And 99.9% out of 100 uh, times, they will screw it up. And so nobody liked that. We got to another director, then another director. I mean, it just didn't, it just didn't work out. I mean, we couldn't get, couldn't get a script that was anybody could agree on. And nobody would write a script that was really basically what the book was. I mean, the template was there, mm-hmm. but nobody wanted to um, follow it. Well, and they really and had their choice of, uh, I mean, there, there were multiple sequels to it too. So even if you just wanted to use the origin story from the first book and tell one of the other, the story of one of the other books, you, you know, you, you plenty to pull from, I guess is what I'm well, saying. I, I agree with you. And I agree. And, you know, the same thing happened with, with my, uh, my born novels. There was so much um, in there for the people at, um, who was it? Um, well, anyway, the, the um, no, I blocked it out because it's just so uh, universal uh, to deal with. And, and nobody wanted to even look at the books. And yet they couldn't find a screenplay that anybody liked. This is what, this is typical of Hollywood. Just typical. I, you know, I, I had cousins who worked in Hollywood all their lives and I spent a lot of time out there and I got to know how insane it, it is out there. And um, Hollywood is driven by two things, greed and fear. Sort of like the stock market. <laughs> and there's nothing in between. You know, well, so. I have some friends, uh, writer friends who work tangentially in the entertainment field is a couple of them are editors, you know, uh, for television shows, they, you know, actual cut and splice editors. Uh, my best friend's brother is a producer and stuff. So, I mean, you hear the same thing come out over and over again about that craziness that you're talking about. And the one constant that I hear that surprises me is that writers are hugely undervalued in that system. It's yes. like everybody thinks, hey, I can have an idea so I could be a writer. And the the craft elements are just not appreciated the way that they're, they should they're not be. Existent. And, and specifically, novelists are, you know, at the at the bottom of the, they're in another barrel altogether. So <laughs> at the bottom of that one too. Huh? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, but but even well-known script writers are not really well thought of in Hollywood. They just don't, you know. Ever, ever since time immemorial, it was it was either the the studios who um, felt they were making the films, or the, now the directors. But writers, no. And they don't, they don't really get credit for it. It's odd too, because if you, if you think about all of the, you know, the movies that people would say, these are the best movies of that year or this year, if you look at them, a very large percentage of them came, you know, from a novel or a short story, uh, were adapted by, you know, from the work of the very people that are being undervalued. I, you know, I agree with you, but something has started to change in the last couple of years. Um, and it has nothing to do with films. It has to do with TV. Mm-hmm. The Netflix effect? Well, yeah, in a way, yeah. But because in that world, 
um, creators are very much valued. And when you see TV shows made of, now they're doing a lot of, you know, um, graphic novels, mm -hmm. they stick very closely to the graphic novels mm -hmm. until they run out of room. And then they, they if, if it's that successful, they go on. I'm like the Umbrella Academy. Yeah. I'll give you, mm -hmm. which is a very, very fun show. It's mm -hmm. the first two seasons have stuck exactly to the Umbrella Academy. But now, since it's so big that they, they've, uh, and Netflix has ordered at least a third season, from the third and fourth season. And now the, the writers are on their own because that's the second season is where the end of that story is, is where the Umbrella Academy graphic novel left off. Um, but you don't get that in, in films. And I don't, I don't know why it is. I, I just really don't, but it's a whole different world um, in streaming TV now. And every creator is given um, a tremendous amount of leeway and confidence. And, mm -hmm. and that has made for a number of really terrific shows. Yeah. Uh, one of the ones on HBO that I really liked was Big Little Lies. And that was an interesting one because it employed the novelist as the uh, one of the screen, you know, in the writer's room as one of the, the screenwriters. And then uh, the second season, you know, went beyond the scope of the original novel, but they still had her there to help continue the story of her characters. And I, I just thought that well, was a that wonderful was, example. That was Reese, Reese Witherspoon's doing. And it was also HBO's doing because they allowed Reese Witherspoon to, to quarterback the whole show. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you had had, if Big Little Lies had been made into a film, you can be sure it would have been something totally different. <laughs> Which would be a loss because it was a it pretty was. fantastic uh, two seasons so far. Um, well, you had a pretty fantastic run with Nicholas Lenier. I mean, there's like six six or so novels plus a, six novels. a, yep. a prequel yep. sort of deal there. And I remember reading, I think I read the first three pretty bang, bang, bang. And I think that was all that was out when I first discovered it. But uh, he certainly was your bread and butter in the thriller department for a while. But then you ended up uh, picking up, as you mentioned earlier, um, thriller icon in uh, in the Jason Bourne series. And and that's interesting to me because I've had a couple of people on the show, uh, Robin Burcell, who worked with Clive Cussler and Reed Farrell Coleman, who uh, picked up Robert Parker's series for a little while. And so talking to someone who's continued the work of a, a prominent series and a prominent author is, is kind of, it's kind of fascinating. And how did that yeah. come about and, and how'd that well, work? Well, Bob Ludlum and I share um, an agent. And in those days, my agent, about three times a year, he would have these wonderful parties for his clients. Uh, it was a really great thing. And and in the fall of 1980, and this was when both the Ninja and the Born Identity, both of them were on the bestseller list. Uh, when I got to the party, Henry said to me, um, Bob Ludlam would like to meet you. And I said, you're kidding, right? Because he had a, a, a reputation well-deserved of being a curmudgeon and not really want to talk to anybody and not liking any contemporary thriller writer. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he's, he read The Ninja, he loved it, and he would like to talk to you. So he led me over to this guy, uh, a very intimidating guy, even though he was sitting down. He was in a corner. Nobody was anywhere near him, uh, nursing a, a whiskey on the rocks. And uh, we started talking and about um, how similar Nicholas and uh, Bourne were as far as their 
world attitudes and their loyalties and um, talking about how we structure thriller novels. And we just got on like a house of fire. We, we just became, uh, we spent the whole evening together. So I can imagine liked you. <laughs> we, did. um, we didn't have that much um, contact after that, but we were, we were really very close. And after he died, his, the executor of his estate asked me to lunch and asked me if I wanted to write the Bourne books. And I said, uh, huh? And he said, well, you know, the first film um, did really well. And it did. The Bourne Identity did a really good, did really well, even though they they took the first, I would say, six minutes, uh, six, uh, I don't know how many pages it was, but the first six minutes of the film were um, pretty much what the, what the book was. And then they went off on their own. And from then on, they never they never paid any attention to the books, even though they had the titles. And much to my amazement, nobody nobody seemed to care <laughs> that the films wow. were different stories than the books. I don't I don't understand that. But anyway, what what he said was they're coming out with um, a second film, and I got the idea of having a, a new Bourne book out when the film comes out, so it could piggyback on like you know whatever it is, two hundred fifty million dollars worth of publicity. And I thought that was a great idea. And I said, well, you know, look, uh, let me think about it, but I'm not going to write it in Bob's style. He said, no, you can write it in your style. And I said, also, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, ghostwriter. So either it has my name on it or I'm not interested. And he thought about it for a minute. He said, okay. So I went home, woke up the next morning, took a shower, had the whole plot of the book in my head. Wow, that fast, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, well, that's sort of how I work anyway. And, but I thought about it. I mean, I'm, I'm a, um, I look at, always look at the macro pictures. So when I sat down with my agent and uh, the executive of the the estate, I said, look, I don't want to think about this as one book to think about it as, you know, a continuing idea. And this is what I think needs to happen. Bob Bob, Bob never thought of it as a series, which is why he had born get married, have kids. And that was a mistake because you can't have a continuing character married with kids. It's just, what are you going to do with them? Because they're, they're totally, they're under threat every two seconds. So uh, I said, we have to find a way to kill off Marie, his wife, and ship out the kids. And they said, okay, tell us how you want to do it. And I told them and they said, fine. And that's what we did. I mean, I had Marie died in a skiing accident, not a, not a murder, but a skiing accident between the books. And the kids were shipped off to her grandparents who had a farm in uh, somewhere in the wilds of Canada. And that took care of that. But it was important, you know, for, to me to have, to not alienate any of Bob's readers while garnering new, new, a whole new crop of readers that would come to the books from the films. Mm-hmm. And so I worked very hard on 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 how to do that and crafting uh, Bourne so he was recognizable. So I mean, I wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize Bourne's, you know, innate traits, mm-hmm. and, but to make him recognizable towards what people saw in the films, the Matt, the Matt Damon interpretation of him, which was very close to to Bourne anyway. What was the uh, first one that you wrote? Um 
the <laughs> I got you. Huh? Like uh, I'm, you I'm know, on your 20, website right now, and I'm 20 looking. Books, Twenty books yeah. ago. <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm not they're they're, they're not in order on here. Is the reason I asked. They're. T- uh, no, I mean, the it's, born it's initiative. It's the only one the that's published one by uh, St. Martin's Press. Yeah. Um, Legacy. That's Legacy it. was the first one. Yeah, the born Legacy. Uh-huh. Uh, and. Um, Really, uh, St. Martin's didn't want to publish the They didn't believe in me at all. They didn't think I could do it. Uh, they didn't like the deal. They didn't. They were nervous about uh, what, you know, what if um, the Universal backs out of the film? What if they don't, you know, what if the film is not good? What if the film is delayed? And in the end, they did it. And it was a monumental success, except they refused to go back and do a second ad campaign, which is why we left them uh, for Hachette. And um, they did, except for the last two books, they did they did a great job. And the books did so well that they asked my agent if I would do one a year instead mm-hmm. of, you know, every three years when the films came out. And I said to him, um, no, nah, I can't write two books a year. And he said, yeah, try it for a year. See if you, you know, he said, I know you, you're fast. See if you can do it. And that's what I did for the next uh, 16 years. I did two books a year, which um, was okay because I, I don't know what to do with myself when I had downtime. <laughs> I really, I love writing so much that I wanted, you know, I, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be idle for long. I can be idle for like, I don't know, 10 days maybe. And that's, that's, that's the end of it. I, you know. That's basically a vacation. So, yeah. So, you know, and when I was writing the, the last Born book that I did, I, I started thinking about uh, leaving because I, I was tired of writing a male character, lead character. I had always had very strong women characters in my novels, but I'd never had one that that was was the lead character. And I really felt that's what I wanted to do. I couldn't do it with a born book, obviously. Um, so I told uh, I told the, the estate that I was stepping away from the project. They were very surprised, unhappy, but they, you know, there was nothing they could do. And then I started writing this book um, with my with my new character, uh, Evan Ryder, who I absolutely adore now. I mean, I, I've just finished the second book. The first book is out now. Um, it's been out since, I think about it, six weeks now, uh, The Nemesis Manifesto. Mm-hmm. And the new book is called The Cobalt Dossier, Cobalt with a K. And mm. uh, it gets even deeper into the characters. And that's that's what I really wanted. To so me, is there a freshness there that, that you were missing? Uh, yes. Writing the same character yes. over and over again? Yeah. Not just the yeah, gender needed, swap, but... Well, it wasn't just a gender swap. I mean, I didn't want to write a character, a female character, who was, you know, a, ma- a man in drag, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of male writers, frankly, do. And I'm very lucky, very, very lucky to be married to the most incredible woman, uh, Victoria, who is also my editor. I met her when she was editing my fantasy books. And she's also a a writer. She's written three novels, but she is my editor. And when I started uh, thinking about um, Evan, when I wrote part of the first draft, I said to her, I want you to read it because this has to read like she's a woman. And she, she said... You're right. And she changed, she says, suggested some things that were absolutely correct. She said, you know, a female would not do this specific thing this way. They would do it. They would do, they wouldn't do X, they would do Y. Mm-hmm. And she was absolutely right. And it helped me 
form the character as as a female, which is really what I wanted. And uh, she monitors those books constantly to make sure that I'm not straying from that um, objective. So people expecting a female born would be uh, aren't going to get that. But I suspect that if they enjoy born books, they would enjoy the nemesis. nemesis they would love it. It's, 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 uh, you know, yeah. It, frankly, I, I'll tell you, frankly, Frank, <laughs> uh, the, the, the detail on character, more character oriented, was the way I was going anyway with the last number of born books. Mm -hmm. This is stepped up the pace on that on that pattern. So in that sense, the people who love my born books would really love uh, this book. We'll get back to our conversation with Eric Van Lusbader in just a moment, but this is the time in the show where I like to turn things over to the experts. And when I say experts, I'm talking about people who know good crime fiction and want to recommend it to you. Uh, this could be super readers, uh, bookstore employees or owners, uh, and most frequently, recently, it has been former guests. And that's what we have on this episode. We're going to hear from Reed Farrell Coleman, future guest Bo Johnson, and recent guest Lee Matthew Goldberg. Hey, this is Reed Farrell Coleman. I think one of the greatest underappreciated authors is a fellow named Peter Spiegelman. He wrote a few uh, John March P.I. novels, but I would definitely go for his latest, Dr. Knox, a great novel and underappreciated. Hi, this is Bo Johnson, author of All of Them to Burn. I would like to recommend to you Sean Cosby's My Darkest Prayer. It is some good stuff. Check it out. Makes you want to read more. Uh, hi, I'm Lee Matthew Goldberg. Uh, and a great book recommendation I read recently, uh, kind of along the lines with this dystopian reality that we're living, is uh, John Lancaster's The Wall, uh, which is a, a really weird, out there, kind of sci-fi-ish, uh, frightening tale about the future. Uh, there's some good recommendations there, folks. Uh, can't go wrong listening to other crime writers when it comes to what books are good. Trust us. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Eric Van Lesbader. You know, I, I want to circle back around to something, though. You, you mentioned that you uh, write fantasy as well. Uh, growing up, before I discovered the ninja and, and got into martial arts, most of my reading was science fiction and fantasy. And... Um, your series, you have a title called The Veil of a Thousand Tears. And right. I haven't read that book yet, but just the title alone makes me want to grab it. I mean, that is a great title. Did you come up with that title? Or is... I did. That's I did awesome. Come up with that title. This has a strange history because um, it was bought by, by Tor, who has been my publisher for many, many, many years. And, and Tom Doherty, who is the founder of Forge and the head of it, is a very good friend of mine and his daughter, Linda Quentin is my now my my publisher because uh, Tom has has moved to an uh, emeritus status, and I was also contracted to uh, Harper Collins uh, for for these books. They did. I mean, I'll be honest. They didn't sell the way anyone wanted them to, and, and uh, 
they were supposed to, the books were supposed to be, it was supposed to be a, a, a series of five books. I wrote three and I was going to go to the fourth one. And then HarperCollins called me and said, what do you mean? We always thought it was a, a, a trilogy. And I said, I didn't say this to him, but it was, that was total crap because you could tell that by the third, third book, it was not finished. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the, the, the story was, was at a certain place and that finished there, but there were other things going to, that were hinted that they were going to happen. So consequently the um, series was never finished, which is one of the great sadnesses of my life because it has a great number of fans and they're fanatic. The fans are fanatic. And um, I got a lot, a lot I'll, I won't, I'll be honest, I got a lot of angry um, emails um, when I didn't finish the series. And, <laughs> but it's like it's your fault. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, I, you know, what I wanted to say to them was, well, you know, if there were 10 times of you, I would, I would go back and do it, but there aren't. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I love those three books. I mean, they're, they're really, um, and the first one, Honestly, Frank, it saved, it saved my life because um, the last three uh, Nicholas Lanier books were bought by Simon & Schuster by Pocket Books, and that was such a dreadful experience for me that when the contract was up, I con- contemplated um, quitting the business. Really? Yeah, I just was so upset and and depressed over how they screwed everything up that I just thought, I, you know, I don't want to go through this again. And um, so I didn't do anything for a couple of months. And then I was cleaning out my library. My, I'm sorry, my, my, um, the library in my office. And I found a manuscript that I had forgotten. And it was a partial manuscript. It was about, hmm, I guess, about 100 pages or so. And I started reading it. <clears throat> and it was the start of a fantasy novel. And I really loved it. So I called my agent. I said, look. Uh, I told him what happened because he was very upset about my thinking about quitting. And uh, I said, go to, go, to, go to Tom and see if we can get a contract for this. And he did. He got us a, th- a three-book contract. And um, it, did, it did fairly well for t- Tor. It didn't do um, well for HarperCollins. I don't think they knew what, how, to, how to handle it. Um, cause they kept changing the covers and, um, Tor knows what they're doing when it comes to fantasy. Yeah, they do. That's their, that's yeah, their do. Um, bread and butter. But, um, so I was kind of surprised that it didn't do better, but you know, when I read, um, epic fantasy and it didn't fall into the epic fantasy realm and it didn't, it was either most, like most of my books is kind of between genres or subgenres. Mm-hmm. So they didn't quite know how to sell it. Because they wanted to sell it as an epic fantasy, but it sort of isn't. Because epic fantasy just takes forever to get rolling, mm-hmm. and my books don't. I get bored to tears. That's why I can't read epic fantasy. I just can't. It's just like two hundred pages of like nothing happening, um, and I can't write like that. So um, I think it was not what readers were expecting. But as my as Linda Quinton, my publisher now, pointed out to me, she said, "You've." had a fantastic career because you've done every step of the way you've done what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. She said, yeah, it may have um, depressed your sales a little bit because you're going from one genre to another confuses people. But she said, everything you've done for us has been fantastic and it's made you happy. So, you know, 
what more could you want? And, you know, she's right. I never thought about it that way. And I can't imagine, Frank, any other publisher saying that to their author, being that. Yeah, yeah it's a very human approach. Very, yeah. Uh, that's, that's the way Tor is about everything. Tor Forge, they're, uh, they're the best company in the business as far as I'm concerned. Well, that series featured a a samurai protagonist, and then obviously the Nicholas uh, linear novels featured a, a ninja protagonist. So I guess I have a two part question for you here. Uh, one is, you know, those are both Japanese. You know, culturally they're both Japanese in, in origin. Was it those those woodprints that drew you to the Japanese culture? Were there other things yes. that drew you to that? Well, the, uh, that, the woodblock prints uh, fascinated me. And then I started, you know, doing research and I found, and I do nothing about really Japanese culture at that point, but I found the more I read, the more I, I didn't have to read certain things. I knew what, I knew what Bushido was, the code mm-hmm. of the samurai. I knew, mm-hmm. I knew a whole bunch of things that was just really weird. And um, it struck me that maybe I was Japanese in a former life. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how else to explain something like that uh-huh. because it was, these, these are very esoteric terms and very complicated. And a lot of Westerners really don't get it. And I got it immediately. So there has to be something there about it. But I, the more I read, the more fascinated I became. And uh, reading about why J- Japan got into the war, what happened after the war, which mm-hmm. was very important for the ninja, uh, the restoration of, of Japan, and how the Americans set them up to be a post-war power. And sadly, how they fritter that away um, uh, was was of, of great import to me. And uh, I have a lot of Japanese woodblock prints. Uh, I feel very close to them. Um, and w- my wife and I traveled there on a very special uh, trip uh, for two and a half weeks to every different Buddhist sect monastery that we could find. And also uh, Shinto shrines in the interior of Japan which was just phenomenal. We, we traveled the way Japanese do. We, we had Japanese accommodations. We slept on futons. Uh, the priests at the temples uh, made us food, made us uh, dinners and, and lunches. Uh, we sat in on ceremonies. It was just a magical, magical time for us. And um, just bolstered my feeling. I mean, there wasn't anything that I discovered there that I said, oh, no, I was wrong about that. No, it just reinforced everything that I had felt about, about J- Japanese culture um, and the dichotomy of, you know, what fascinated me was that the samurai were incredible warriors, and yet they were also um, wonderful artists or um, ikibana practitioners, mm-hmm. in other words, uh, flower arranging. Mm-hmm. And... No other, I mean, no other culture would have that dichotomy in 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 their leading figures. So um, that's kind of thing that yin and yang that really resounded with me very strongly. Yeah, the samurai are, are a fascinating uh, topic, and it is that uh, Renaissance man sort of approach that I think is so fascinating. Uh, it's it's not just about the art of whatever weapon they're focused on. No. It's, there's so much no. more to it than that. Um, the other question I had for you on that, though, is, is a little more cinematic than than historical. There have been a lot of good samurai movies, but there haven't really been any good ninja movies. Uh, do you have any idea why why that might be? Uh, any thoughts on that? 
Well, I think basically the, the ninja have been, the, the image of the ninja have, have been um, degraded by um, very bad novels, by, um, and denigrated by, you know, Ninja Turtles, which is, you know, a joke. Um, I mean, it's meant to be a joke, but it, it hasn't helped the image as, as something serious. Um, and I think uh, a lot of Hollywood studios saw it as, you know, an exploitation film about uh, these guys who could, you know, they're, they're like spies, you know, Japanese right. spies. Go around. And nobody really um, had the sense to see what, what the whole culture was. They didn't, you know, when, when, as again, when, when, as I said again, when, when um, the ninja was sold, we couldn't get a screenwriter. There were three, I forget, either three or four screenwriters. One, one screenplay was worse than the next, <laughs> just awful. And nobody, I mean, I, you know, I kept talking to uh, Zanuck and Brown and saying, you, you know, you gotta, but they, they didn't, they really didn't want to, they heard me, but they didn't really believe what I was saying. And, um, you know, they, they started casting the film and, and uh, Lou Croker, they decided it was going to be um, someone who was black. Why? It had nothing to do with diversity. It had to do with uh, the actor they wanted was hot at the moment. Hmm. And that's, how, that's how decisions are made in Hollywood. Who's, yeah. Not who's best for the film, but who's hot at the moment. And um, that doesn't make for very good films. So and now the whole project is pretty much lost because now the twentieth has been uh, gobbled up by Disney. I don't even know where who who even anybody at Disney even knows that it exists anymore. So you know it's one of those lost uh, lost kingdoms. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Not to pick on Hollywood some more, but I remember even as a you know starry eyed fifteen sixteen year old who really wanted to like every ninja or every martial arts movie period, you know, they would cast somebody who had very limited, if any martial arts ability as the uh, star. And then you you stunt doubles, but then they'd show them doing stuff occasionally where you can tell they have no skill at all. And it's just was frustrating. Um, So would, would Jason Bourne be a samurai or a ninja? (laughs) Good question. Um, well, he was a master of stealth, so I would say a ninja. Um, okay. How about Evan? Evan Ryder. Evan Ryder, definitely a ninja. Well, another ninja, most likely, uh, out there that people may not be aware that you've had anything to do with, uh, unless they're a super fan, is uh, the Dark Knight himself, uh, Batman. I did not know, and I've read several of your books, uh, that you wrote a, uh, a Batman graphic novel. Yes, I did. I, I was asked to do it by DC Comics. And I, I first, I really didn't want to. And um, because I didn't know a lot about it, about doing it. Um, but then um, my agent who was really, was really wonderful. He's retired now. He's really, was really wonderful. He worked a whole year on this contract, making sure I got control of the inker, the penciler, the uh, character, in other words, my my uh, interpret because this is co-starred Catwoman, and my interpretation was her belongs to me, which is unheard of. In other words, and nobody will. But if anybody wanted to use that character the way I she's depicted in my graphic novel, they would have to get my permission, and I would get uh, royalties on that. 
So there's a there's a Lust Bader universe version of Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there, yes, there is, and she uh, she really has a knowing me. She really has a, a starring role, um, and they it was it was really a fascinating process because I wrote the script as if I were illustrating it. In other words, mm-hmm. each panel. Uh, I described each panel and what was going on with each in each panel, and uh, the illustrator did exactly that. And he would every week he would send me these big double size pencils of what he was doing, and uh, it was really it was really pretty fantastic. I mean, the first time he did it, I said, you know, uh, I like big breasts as much as the next guy, but you got to tone down uh, Catwoman's uh, chest. Because it's way too way too big. <laughs> I told him that. I said, you know, come on now. That that's just you know crazy. So he did, and and it was fine. It's not, it's, it's not a Sin City uh, graphic novel, right? It's <laughs> no, no. But so I mean, I really enjoyed doing it. It's it's a wonderful graphic novel. It's and called I, the Last I, Angel. Yeah, the Last Angel. Thank you. I, I wanted them to redo it because it, it, it sold out of its of every printing. It was it was bought by the uh, paperback book club, mm-hmm. uh, which which I don't even know whether it exists anymore. So that was that was like uh, fifteen thousand copies right there. And I I have friends at at DC now, and I asked them about putting it out again, and they said they'd love to, but it's not the right format. It's not quite long enough. It's too long for a comic. For, for an issue, single issue, and it's too short for the way they do graphic novels now. So, you know, that's uh, that's my karma, man. I mean, that's I, a frustrating know, I just, thing, though. I mean, it's yeah, so. Yeah, but you know what? You, know, you got to let it go. I mean, yeah. I'm very Buddhist about it. My wife is a Buddhist, and I'm learning from her. And um, she has a happier life because she's a Buddhist. And I I realize I understand what what. She means when you said you got to let these things go because otherwise they, they'll just eat at you, and there's no point. There's nothing you can do. Well, so, I, I would I would say that your decision to uh, move from the the Born series to the Evan Rider series um, has a little bit of an echo of Buddhism to it, in that uh, the Born series had to be doing okay for you on a financial sense, very, but, you, yeah, but rather than hold on to that, you know, you followed more of your creative needs and, uh, and moved a different direction. And while that's not strict Buddhism, I realize it's still, uh, you know, that attachment to the, the sure thing didn't hold you back from doing what made you happy. So, no, you know, I got into writing cause I loved it. And my agent said to me, you know, I, when I asked him, do you think I ought to do the Bourne novels? She said, well, you don't need the money, but if it's going to be fun, do it. Mm-hmm. If it ever gets to a point where it's not fun, drop it. And that's exactly what I did. And, you know, again, what Linda Quinton said, that I've, I've the guiding light of my uh, career, which spans from 1973 to now, uh, as, as I've done whatever I wanted to do and, you know, Sometimes you got to take the consequences of not being, um, you know, Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because, uh, you know, I admire him tremendously. I admire him as a person and as a writer, but that's not me. And, and, um, you know, same thing with Michael Crichton or any of these other people who just Mm -hmm. did things in the same vein over and over. I can't, I can't do that. So I, I do what I do and I do it well. 
I would agree. You do it well. Uh, before I let you go, I have to ask you one question, though. I read in your bio that you uh, were an early predictor of Elton John's success and actually became friends with him and his songwriter, uh, but also that you predicted the success of, of quite a few other bands early on. I can click onto it here and it'll tell me, but I think The Who is one of them. Yeah, Santana. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bowie. Uh, yeah, the Hendrix experience. You, right. Now, you were writing uh, for Cashbox magazine at the time, so you were essentially a music critic. Is that a fair? Critic. That's correct. Uh, and, I was in the and, music business for 10 years. The best 10 years of the music business, I will say, from 1970 to 1980. Well, my favorite record came out in that time period, so that's I have to agree with you. I guess my question would be, you know, you predicted success of all of these uh, wildly successful individuals and groups. What did they all have that made you think, ah, this person, this group, they're going somewhere? Or was it something different for each of them? No, that was the same for each of them. And it's the same thing that happened when I first heard the Beatles. Something inside of me, excited something inside of me that uh, I had never felt before. Uh, Each one of these groups, acts, um, who I heard that I felt, when I felt that deep down inside, I felt very strongly that they were going to be big. And, you know, nine out of 10 times I was right. I wasn't right all the time. Nobody can be, but, uh, you know, a great majority of the time. And, and as a matter of fact, I was hired from uh, Cashbox to Electra Records by Jack Halsman, the founder and president, in order to, because of, because of my A&R skills. And, um, but that was, that's a whole other story. He wanted me to head up Electra Records in England. He, they didn't have an office there, and he wanted me to head it up there because I was an Anglophile, and uh, most of the bands that I that I predicted would be bigger were English. Um, but um, that would have put me in a in a um, administrative role, which is not me at all. I mean, I didn't want to be looking for the right place to have the office, to hire managers. To, that was not me at all. So uh, I became part of the A uh, and R department, which was a lot of fun until it wasn't. Unbeknownst to me, or well, I'll tell you, unbeknownst to me or anybody, Holtzman had been um, wanting to f- retire to Hawaii. He had a house in Hawaii, and he had pretty secretive negotiations with Warner and Warner Brothers Music. And um, about a year after I came aboard, he left. And, and Warner came in and they, the offices were immediately overrun by a platoon of accountants. And I remember distinctly, um, what, this was also, they, they had you know Atlantic Records they bought. And one of the great things about Atlantic Records was their jazz catalog that was Nestle Erdogan, Erdogan's uh, province. And the minute they came in, they cut out of the jazz catalog every record that wasn't selling a certain amount per year, just cut it. Just arbitrarily. And, yeah. Arbitra- well, it wasn't arbitrary to them. It was, it was. Here's the threshold. Measure up to a certain yeah. threshold. And I don't know mm-hmm. how they, they determined that threshold. Nobody, nobody told us uh, it was gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody who was any, any good at Electra stayed because uh, nobody wanted to be around these people. So I left. And um, it was a, it was a, a sad moment because uh, the 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 first group that I signed called Aztec Two Step their album had just come out 
and everybody resigned, including the, the salespeople. So you can imagine what happened to that album. Oh, yeah, or all of the, the new, yeah, every, newly signed people. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. What do you suppose it was when you said that these these different groups reached inside and touched something inside you that made you know they were going to be a, a star? That, you know, what do you suppose I, that was? I, I don't know. You, I, I wish I could say. It's like asking me, you know, how do you write? I don't know. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. there. You know, mm-hmm. if you asked um, Bach how he wrote, I couldn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, neither could uh, Elton or Bernie. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> they just sat down and 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 it, it came out. It came out of them like uh, like a river, and that's mm-hmm. that's how my writing came out, and that's what I what I feel when I listen to certain music. It's like this this incredible river that. Uh, the way my my writing does connects me with something bigger than mm-hmm. than me, than you, than the than America, than the world. Something I don't want to get woo woo, but something cosmic, something mm-hmm. really large that makes me intensely happy and takes me out of myself and makes me feel like there is there is much more to the universe than we than we know. I think. You know, the way writing is, music is a magical, magical art, and uh, nobody can explain it. Can't. Well, I think I think you just did <laughs> pretty well, actually. Okay. <laughs> you. Might, well, I, I don't think I, I don't think you quantified it, but you explained it, so okay. I think that was a good answer. Uh, do you have, Do you have a favorite Elton John song? Um. Yeah, I would guess your song. Is the first uh, song yeah. Is the yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit funny. This feeling inside. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, every time I hear it, I start, I start crying. It's, yeah, it's so pretty... beautiful and so yeah. heartfelt and so simple in its uh, message. And mm-hmm. uh, it was one of the things about Elton Bernie that was like Glenn McCartney. Their, their two gifts melded into something extra special. They were not the same when they they when Elton did some music with uh, Tim Rice or whatever later on in his career was not anything like what he did with Bernie. And, and uh, it's just one of those things that, that again, inexplicable. Um, you know, you could think about the ensemble for Friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take, take all of them out of there, they're not the same thing, but when you put them together, there was something, there was a magic that was created. Same thing with Seinfeld. Um, these things are just... Honestly, Frank, these are what make what makes life worth living. These <laughs> these these moments of wonder and and joy that you get from mm-hmm. these things. Well, it sounds like you are experiencing some of those with the new series, the Evan Writer series. Um, the Nemesis Manifesto is available now from Forge, right? Yes. Uh, and I want to tell you, uh, having you know read read your work as a very young man. Uh, and now being a uh, deeply middle-aged man, <laughs> it was uh, quite a thrill to get a chance to talk to you. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, it was really my pleasure, Frank. This is one of the one of the best um, interview podcasts I've ever done. Oh, well, thank you. You're a terrific host. 
Well, there you go, folks. Uh, I told you it was a long conversation. It kind of was a little longer than our usual show, uh, but also illuminating. And uh, what an interesting guy. I mean, uh, the, the books, uh, everything surrounding the books, interesting as can be. But, uh, you know, the the foray into the music business and, and, and some of this stuff, just uh, pretty, pretty fascinating guy. I really enjoyed my conversation with him. I hope you did as well. Our next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime will have a book recommender extraordinaire, Bo Johnson. Bo's written a, a huge number of short stories and uh, also has done a lot to promote other authors. We're going to talk about both of those things and a little bit more on the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. A quick Zafiro update for you. It is mid-October and we are smack dab in the middle of of the badge heavy release that happened in September and the code four release that will happen in November. So if you are a Charlie 316 series reader, uh, a series that I wrote with uh, my good friend and co-author Colin Conway, uh, you better get to reading if you want to get done before code four comes out. And that is the last book in the series comes out 1123. I'll have some other news on uh, future episodes, but uh, we'll, we'll stop there for this episode. It's been a long one. Uh, I do want to say uh, thanks to Down Out Books for being a great sponsor, to uh, Eric Van Lesbader for coming on the show, to our book recommenders, Reed Farrell, Coleman, Bo Johnson, and Lee Matthew Goldberg, and always to you, the listener, because you're the reason why I do this. Well, that and because I get to talk to writers and make new friends, and that's pretty cool. But I wouldn't record it and edit it if it weren't for you. So thanks for listening. Uh, Bo Johnson will be on the next episode. Until then, this is Frank Zaffaro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. Hey.